Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to what is the last class on the book of Ender's Game. Uh, and uh, before we uh, start talking, before we look on this coming Tuesday at the adaptation of the book into the film, into the recent film. Um, but first, I wanted to start off with an announcement. I can't remember if we, if I announced this in the last class or not, so I'm going to do it again. Um, but you've probably heard the results of the voting for the final two books we will be discussing in our first year of the Mythgard Academy. And those are Tolkien's Book of Lost Tales, Part 1, and then Dune by Frank Herbert. So we have uh, another Tolkien book and then another uh, classic science fiction book. I am very excited about both of these. We're going to do uh, The Book of Lost Tales first. So for those of you who haven't read this before, this is volume one of the History of Middle-Earth series, uh, in which Christopher Tolkien goes back and sort of shows us the evolution of Tolkien's uh, thoughts, uh, you know, looking at his unpublished works from all the way back in the teens and moving forward. The Book of, the Book of Lost Tales is a fascinating glimpse at really some of the beginnings of Tolkien's thinking. So if you're sort of wondering where, you know, Tolkien's ideas came from and how they grew, it is a fascinating, fascinating study. So we're going to be looking at the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1, and we're going to be starting that on Tuesday, May 20th. Um, so we're going to that we're gonna have uh, our last class on Ender's Game this coming week. We're going to skip one week, and then we'll start the Book of Lost Tales after that. Um... So that's what's coming up immediately after we finish the Book of Lost Tales. Then we will start with Dune by Frank Herbert, um, and I'm gonna be um, I'm gonna be publishing the official sort of week by week reading schedule for uh, for both books. Certainly with the Book of Lost Tales first uh, as soon as I can. I hope to do that this coming week. There's a lot going on, but I hope to get that done uh, this coming week so you guys can start preparing for that. Um, so that is. Uh, um, that is now official, and we're you know, definitely getting ready to start uh, the Book of Lost Tales, so that should be a lot of fun. But today, let us finish talking about Ender's Game. Um, I got through the battle last time, uh, through the destruction of the bugger homeworld and the annihilation of the buggers and the revelation, that sort of moment of horrible anagnorisis, horrible to Ender, delightful to everyone else, um, that uh, it was not a game, that it was in fact real, that Ender has indeed, without knowing it, uh, committed genocide. Um, and... Um, uh, anyway, so... Um, uh, we're going to uh, look at chapter 14, the final chapter, um, uh, and uh, um, I hope tie up uh, some loose ends and things. There have been a bunch of things that we've been discussing all along that I have sort of had this last chapter in mind uh, as we've been discussing for. So um, I, uh, I hope we'll be able to kind of tie some things together. And then I, I have received a number of uh, comments and questions from you guys, which I hope to address a couple of them today at least. Um, I have to say, one trend that I noticed is that many of you who sent me comments sent me enormously long comments, which were fantastic, really interesting. But I was sort of like, how do I don't know how to present this exactly in the context of the class. Um, so uh, I'd actually love to... Uh, 
to to give the you know sort of the opportunity for others to read some of the comments that I received. Uh, I'm not quite sure actually the mechanism for that yet, but uh, maybe we'll think about that and kind of get back to you. But um, anyway, I do have a few of them that I do want to that I do want to touch on, and some of the things that uh, you guys emailed me about, I was planning to talk about today anyway. So we'll sort of do those as we go along. Now. Um, I want to begin, you know, where we start chapter 14 seems to me pretty interesting. In the conversation between Anderson and Graf, one of the things we notice right away um, is that now that Ender is done, that is, you know, he, he is he, ha, he proved to be the perfect tool for the job that needed doing to save humanity, and... Uh, and they uh, and he's done now, right? He's he's accomplished the task for which he was uh, for which he was shaped. He has destroyed the target at which he was aimed, and now uh, they're kind of worrying what's going to become of him afterwards. Notice uh, what uh, what tends to happen here. So this is again this is Anderson and Graf uh, talking. Um, Graf uh, first. Ender is far too dangerous. He's only 11, 12 now, talking about him going back to Earth. All the more dangerous, because he could be he could so easily be controlled. In all the world, the name of Ender is one to conjure with. The child god, the miracle worker, with life and death in his hands. Every petty tyrant-to-be would like to have the boy, to set him in front of an army and watch the world either flock to join or cower in fear. If Ender came to Earth, he'd want to come here, to rest, to salvage what he can of his childhood, but they'd never let him rest. So you can see the two dividing motives uh, in Graf, sort of his two different thoughts about this. On the one hand, he remains, as he has been all along, on some level concerned for Ender himself. We've, you know, we looked a little bit at the way in which Graf himself is torn, and the kind of self-loathing that um, that Graf himself. Um, experiences, uh, and so that comes out at times during those conversations with Graf that we get at the very beginning of each chapter. Um, so we know that he has had compassion on Ender, that he does uh, he does care about him, and yet he has always submerged that in favor of doing what he felt needed to be done in order to shape Ender and use Ender in the way that Ender, that, that, that uh, you know, that graph, that the fleet, that humanity needed Ender to be used. But of course, so now uh, we still see him concerned for Ender, but at the same time, we also see him recognizing, you know, um, the problem with shaping the perfect tool is that once the perfect tool has been shaped, it can be reused again, right? That uh, Ender is never going to be safe. He is in a in in a way too perfect a tool. Um, he can be used by others. Now I'm not sure I totally agree with Graf that um, Ender will be easily would be easily controlled uh, by every petty tyrant to be. Um, Valentine, of course, is a little bit more realistic in her concerns of Peter attempting to control Ender. Um, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but again, we can st- we can see you know. One of the things that the fleet is kind of ta- uh, caught in here is having created Ender and having shaped him to be a tool. Now we see the kind of anxiety, right? We so we see that we see the, the the sort of consequences of this. Once you 
dehuman once you dehumanize him, once you set him aside, the way that they're thinking about him here, I think, is really revealing. Right? They're thinking of him in this dehumanized way. Again, he's like a he's he's like a weapon that could be stolen and used by somebody else. Um, they're not thinking of him as a person who actually could be free to make his own choices here. Um, it's like they've conditioned themselves in their own thinking about Ender, even Graf, who does seem to have. Um, I am willing to believe, um, you know, some level of genuine empathy for him and, and genuine um, compassion for him. It is possible April Harvard is suggesting that he might be thinking specifically of Peter here um, and, uh, and, and just speaking, uh, you know, indirectly because he's not wanting... We've already seen him not willing to tell Anderson about who Demosthenes and Locke really are and all that. It is, it is possible. That that's uh, that he is only really thinking of him being used by Peter, um, possibly. But again, to me, it fits. Again, it's it's of a piece with the way that they've been treating Ender, the way that they have, in a sense, trained themselves um, to regard and to um, and to, to to sort of utilize Ender. Um, that he could be utilized by that he could be utilized by others. That he is a danger now. Um, looking specifically at Peter, this is in the, converta- the conversation with Valentine, where she's talking about that. Um, um, Valentine says, funny, isn't it, that Peter would save millions of lives through the lock compromise that, uh, that uh, um, sort of headed off the war. While I killed billions, says Ender. I wasn't going to say that, so he wanted, so he wanted to use me. He had plans for you, Ender. He would publicly reveal himself when you arrived, going to meet you in front of all the videos. Ender Wiggins' older brother, who also happened to be the great Locke, the architect of peace. Standing next to you, he would look quite mature, and the physical resemblance between you is stronger than ever. It would be quite simple for him, then, to take over. Why did you stop him? Ender, you wouldn't be happy spending the rest of your life as Peter's pawn. Why not? I've spent my life as someone's pawn. Me too says Valentine. Um, yeah, it's funny. Gerald uh, points out that from early on in the book, um, the officers were always worried that Ender was too easily influenced. Um, and, uh, you know, Gerald points out it worked for them, so they worry, right? Um, again, it's, it's, it, is a, it is a danger, right? When you have made him into a tool, when you have dehumanized him, and, and uh, I, I, you know, then you have made him into a weapon, which conceivably other people could use. Again, their foundation for thinking that somebody could manipulate him and use him is based on the fact that they manipulated him and used him, right? Um, so so you're right about that, Gerald. I mean, there is certainly that element to it. But again, coming back to Peter here. Um, here we have, you know, we, I, we, we've been talking about this for the last few classes, the way, the way in which Peter is sort of positioned as the ultimate user of tools, right? The only one person who never seems to be used as a tool by anyone else. You could argue that Valentine manipulates Peter, um, but it still isn't obvious to me that in the end anyone successfully utilizes Peter as their tools. He on the other hand utilizes everyone, including sort of the mass of humanity through the nets. Um, Whereas Ender, as we've been talking about, is being made into the perfect tool and chose 
you'll recall, we talked about this last time, chose to submit himself to be the perfect tool. You know, he, he was sort of acknowledging that it was needed. He believed that it was necessary, and he was willing to do that. Um, because, you know, I don't want to give the impression, I, you know, I, I, I think perhaps there's a danger in talking about things the way that I have, um, about being used as tools and everything, um, that that might seem universally bad, like a like a like a like an obviously bad thing to do, um, to manipulate another person in that way seems ethically questionable. To submit oneself to be a tool at the service of others and at the service of humanity does not seem necessarily to be a bad thing. Um, in you know the 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 parallel that I, you know, a really interesting parallel opens up, and we mentioned it a little bit, but we didn't talk about it nearly as much as we could have at the end of class last time, between Ender um, in his direction of the fleet and the pilots who are flying the ships that are being steered by Ender and his team into battle. They are, like Ender, tools, right? You know, they are being used as instruments. They are being manipulated by, um, by Ender and by his team. Right, and they're going, and they they're going, they're sacrificing their lives. All of those those pilots who died in that last attack on the Bugger Homeworlds, which was like the entire, uh, you know, the entire, you know, little mini fleet of uh, of fighters, all were all killed in that last battle. They submitted themselves to that. You know, do I think that's a horrible thing? I don't think it's a horrible thing. I mean, I don't see any reason um, from the text for us to be thinking that the sacrifice that they made, Mazer Rackham says they knew what they were doing. They sacrificed themselves willingly. They went into it knowing, um, because remember, these are people who've already sacrificed themselves, right? Just by the travel that they have undertaken. There's no coming back for them. Remember, Mazer Rackham points out that they, um, uh, you know, he himself has already um, has already lost all of his, you know, his wife and his family and everybody else because of the because of the relativistic trip that he took in order to still be around. Um, these fighter pilots can't get back in time um, to still make anything of their own lives by, by by going. They've already sacrificed themselves, right, for this effort. Um, so, and again, I don't think we are. I mean, I might be wrong. I might be missing some cues here. It doesn't seem to me anything within this story that cues us to look at that as intrinsically a horrifying thing. So again, Ender's choice to submit himself uh, to be a tool, which he does after his time on the raft. You know, when he decides, I'm gonna, you know, I'm I'm, I'm gonna go along. Um, that seems to be, in some ways, I think, an admirable thing. The irony, the thing that makes the ending. The end, you know, the ending, the that moment of revelation when he is told, when he's when he discovers that it wasn't a game. The thing that makes that to me so horrible is the way in which that very willingness is kind of twisted and turned against him. Um, he was willing, and yet they deceived him anyway. Um, and the way, the extent to which he has been essentially betrayed into making these decisions without knowing that he's making these decisions. And you can hear the pragmatism, right, of Graf's, Graf and Mazer Rackham's explanations, right? If you'd known, you couldn't have done it, right? Um, and if you could have done it, you wouldn't have been able to do it. You can, you can, you can see, I mean, I, it's not that I necessarily, um, I can see their reasoning there, but it doesn't change the fact um, 
that it's kind of awful um, and that it has deprived him. Kate, I think uh, Kate Neville puts it in a really uh, good way, exactly what I was thinking, Kate. They, they ended up robbing him of the choice he had been prepared, uh, uh, he'd been prepared to make. Absolutely, I agree. Um, and manipulated him into a position where he made the great decision, the decision to destroy the Bugger homeworld, the decision which made Ender the instrument of 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 genocide, you know, the instrument of the destruction of entire worlds worth of of intelligent beings. He made that under false pretenses, right? He wasn't he 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 is given the responsibility of having made that decision without having really understood the decision that he was making. You know, to, to only learn after the fact that what you did had those consequences is, I think, really, really horrible. Um, uh, you know, April Harward makes a really good point, too. She says, it's a spectacular and brutal introduction to adulthood. He can never play the game again. In fact, will he ever be able to play any games ever again? Right, and April, you know, that's one of the things that we've seen going on with Ender all the way through, and it's it's one of the things that I, you know, I guess another way in which I love the title. Um, you know, Ender's Game. Think of all the games that he's played. We've seen him play three games, right? Um, we've seen him play his game with the simulator, which turned out not to be a game, um, at, uh, command school. We've seen him play the battle, you know, the battle room game in battle school, which again was not really a game, um, sort of was a game and wasn't a game. Um, and then you have the fantasy game, right? On the computer, which was a game. Um, and yet, you know, has, as we've seen, these resonances which go way beyond um, just that game. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, good, April is re- re- reminding me of the game that he plays in the game room uh, with the older boys as a launchy. Yeah, and even there you can see sort of the anticipation of the games uh, of the games to come. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow... Going back to my point about uh, my point about tools and thinking about Peter here, uh, getting back to this passage, um, Ender. This seems to be what Ender's ultimate destiny is likely to be, if um, uh, if he returns to Earth. And so we have Valentine asking him not to return to Earth, but she's not just asking. Or she doesn't just come up and be like. Hey, Ender, I've got an idea. How about you not return to Earth, right? She's already arranged everything. She's got everything. The press release is ready to go out, right? Not just the fact that he's not going to return, but that he is going to go off, uh, you know, to a colony and he's going to govern the colony. Um, this is, uh, uh, you know, so she's already set all of this up already. And so he asks... Um, you know, they they have this exchange soon after this. I know what you're thinking, Ender. You're thinking that I'm trying to control you as much as Gr- Peter or Graf or any of the others. It crossed my mind, he admits. Welcome to the human race. Nobody controls his own life, Ender. The best you can do is choose to fill the roles given you by good people, by people who love you. I didn't come here because I wanted to be a colonist. I came because I've spent my whole life in the company of the brother that I hated. Now I want a chance to know the brother that I love before it's too late, before we're not children anymore. Um, here, Valentine points to something that is really crucial. Again, we've had this 
whole this dynamic of who are going to who are the users of the tools and who are the tools this this issue raised way back in the first class you know in the terminology that um that graph was using about how humanity needs some to service tools right service tools to serve humanity and we've been talking about you know what is humanity what even does humanity mean um and uh, uh you know who exactly is using whom and um and uh, and all that stuff of course what we also have seen and we're this you know, thinking about what we were looking at in the second part in the last latter part of class last time when we were looking at the the similarities and the contrasts between the human fleets and the bugger fleets and uh um and here we have again that contrast the thing that separates humanity from the buggers um the number one difference is the fact that the buggers are tools. They are perfect tools. They act in perfect coordination, and their discipline is excellent, right, as as Ender was observing from looking at their ships uh, and their flight patterns, because they're not independent beings at all. Um, Ender is, you know, we so say Ender is the perfect tool. No, Ender is not the perfect tool, right? The perfect tool is one to whom you can speak telepathically um, and who's who has no thoughts other than your own thoughts, right? The Ender, the, the you know, Ender tries to sort of mimic that, right? And the coordination between him and his team begins to look like a bugger fleet, as Mazer Rackham points out. But of course, as we were looking at before, they're not. They're fundamentally a human fleet. They can act independently. They can do their own thing. Um, they can make their own decisions. Each one of them has their own independent free mind. Um, that is... So when Valentine says, welcome to the human race, she's drawing attention to this, right? When you have... Um, the only way that you could have perfect harmony among people is in a situation like the bugger situation, right? Like in the bugger race, where you have one hive mind, right? That is That resides in the, in the hive queen. And then you have all of the worker buggers who have no personality, no individual mind, no individual thought, and they all work in perfect unison and perfect harmony, right? That's very easy. Um, That's not how it is with human beings, right? They don't act like that, because each one of them has their own individual ego, their own individual will, their own individual intelligence, they necessarily, each one of them is making their own choices, is is deciding things for themselves, is considering themselves, um, and therefore is going to be inescapably attempting to use other people. It, the, the alternative to using other people is never being in contact with other people, right? Um, you know, to be completely isolated in order for human beings to operate together, um, you know, people are going to have different roles in relation... There's always this complex negotiation of using others and being used by others, uh, you know, to sort of put it into those terms. Um, So Valentine says, welcome to the human race. Nobody controls his own life. You're not a hive queen, and you can't be a hive queen, and you're not a worker either. The best you can do is choose to fill the roles given you by good people, by the people who love you humans, of course, can choose. And we were looking at this last time, again, the importance of the choice that Valentine was making and why she was making out of, out of the sense of duty that she had, as well as her, her, her love for Ender. And then you also have 
Ender's choices um, that he was making before and that he is being called upon to make again now. Um, and uh, so we have the Valentine pointing to, I think, um, one of the really clear important differences between bugger civilization and human civilization and by you know by by sort of contrasting those two the two intelligent species that we get in these in these stories um you know buggers and astronauts which have been pair you know paired with each other from the beginning um you know we can see this is the fundamental contrast between them um so it's not that using others as tools makes you like the buggers. Exactly. It's not as simple as that, right? Um, just as um, Ender's fleet, the way that he executes his fleet is not as simple as either I'm going to do just like the buggers. To do that would be more like being like bon- uh, trying to be like Bonzo Madrid, right? The sort of the, 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 the rigid, unthinking, um, easily confused structures that uh, that the other commanders had been using before Ender came in, right? That what they were trying to do essentially was to, um, though they didn't seem to be doing this consciously, mimic the bugger fleet, right? You have this formation; everybody just sort of does their they they have to memorize their role in the formation, but they don't know how to make any decisions on their own, right? They're not independent thinkers. Um, Ender uses them as independent thinkers, and yet also. Coordinates them together in a un- in a unison, which is like the unison of the bugger fleet. Again, I think one of the things that we see there is kind of a tearing down of the dichotomy here. That on the one hand, yeah, humans and buggers are completely different, but it's not as simple as saying using someone else as a tool is really bad, or being used as a tool by somebody else is really horrible. It would, it's, it would simplify things to say that, but I don't think this, that, that the book really permits us uh, to think in terms that are really sort of that simple. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, sorry, I was just scanning some... Uh, um, Yeah, now Sharon says, by my argument, Peter would also be a tool because he can't do his job in isolation. He must interact with other humans. That's true. Again, I, all I say is we never see Peter being used by others, right? Um, in a sense, I think that Peter is is kind of provided to us in this story. He's kind of at the end of almost every of uh, you know at one end of almost every poll. I think um, he's a kind of extreme case. Um, Peter Wigan operates to me in this story as a kind of, almost like a kind of test case for humanity and monstrosity and all these other things that we've been talking about. Um, and, uh, so, so Sharon, I, I, I agree. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to oversimplify that. Um, but, um, um, and that's, I think what we see, um, is well, just to to, to jump ahead uh, a bit to the end, when Peter asks Ender um, to speak for him before he died, before he Peter dies. Of course, Peter is now decades older than Valentine and uh, Peter because of the relativistic thing. Um, he uh, he asks Ender to speak for him. Right, if you can speak for the buggers, you can speak for me. Um, so, of course, what is happening, right? Peter 
bef- right before his death is attempting to use Ender one final time, right? To make Ender his tool, his instrument again, to sort of rehabilitate him and, uh, uh, and you know, sort of tell his story and immortalize him. Um, but, you know, Sharon, I, I, you know, your point was making me think of this because, of course, Peter is also used as well. You know, the 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 um, you know the Hive Queen and the Hegemon. That text, which tells their two stories, becomes Holy Writ, becomes an instrument, right, of um, you know, sort of spreading this viewpoint throughout the other worlds uh, that grow up after the colonies uh, continue. So, um, in a sense, Peter is himself also an instrument. Peter himself is also, as he is asking Ender um, to sort of be his, Peter's tool one more time, um, he also is submitting himself through his story, through the telling of his story, um, to be an instrument. An instrument, in a sense, to further this final thing that Ender is doing in being a speaker for the dead at the end. We'll come back to that a little bit later, but Sharon, that was just what it, what you were making me think of there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Kay Ben Abraham makes a really interesting point. She says, Peter's old conversation with Valentine, um, that is Kay, I assume you're talking about the one where he's proposing about you know what, what they should do and how they should start off and how he wants to have power and needs to be in control and all that stuff. Um, uh, that his old conversation with Valentine makes him sound like a captive of his own cruelty and ambition. Perhaps toolhood can be internal as well as between people. Um, yeah. Is Peter Wigan happy? You know, he gets what he wants, right? He becomes hegemon, right? Peter Wigan rules the world and seems to rule the world for, like, his whole life, uh, as far as we could tell. Seems to rule the world for, like, 60 years. Um, all of his dreams have come true, right? He has accomplished all of his goals. Um, does, is he happy? You know, is he is he satisfied? You know, what we, the picture that it seems to me that we get of Peter at the end is of Peter isolated. Um, I, you know, obviously he's surrounded by other people. He's got other contacts, you know, he's, he's, he's got other people to either be his friends or, or, or to be tormented by him. I don't know. But, um, uh, but the community that we see Peter in, the only place where we see him in a community of his peers is with Valentine and Ender, right? And we see the way in which his own, you know, Kay, in your terms, his own cruelty and ambition had you know distanced him from the beginning from Ender um and from Valentine and then even when he brings Valentine in and the two of them are working together when Valentine and Peter are working together as Valen- as 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 Demosthenes and Locke um it's one of the only times we really see Peter in any kind of community with another person right where he's not deceiving them where he's not just or I should say where he's not just deceiving them or just manipulating them um but where he is really working and you see basically Peter's only peers are his siblings right there's no indication that we have that Peter finds a peer uh, anywhere else outside of his family and we see him distance himself from them and in the end he's cut off from them and we see him aging and dying on his own back on the earth the earth is Peter's you know, he's welcome to it, and he's left on his own there. Um, so there's a kind of isolation, it seems to me, that Peter Wigan is left in by this story. 
Um, and uh, and that seems to be you know it's okay again I'm thinking of of your comment about him him being a captive to his own cruelty and ambition in the end um, being the only one who doesn't submit himself to be a tool for anyone else doesn't actually seem to be a very good position we've already seen it appear to be correlated with um, some pretty monstrous behavior, some pretty monstrous cruelty, um, and inhumanity, in as much as that word means anything anymore at this stage in the class. But, um, uh, but nevertheless, he, uh, it also seems to be, ultimately, to be cut off from everyone else. Peter on Earth is almost like the Hive Queen, with whom he's paralleled, right, at the end. Um, you've got Peter, the master manipulator, and everyone on Earth who has been manipulated into doing his bidding, and he's alone, right? He does not have community. And in the end, it's almost like he's sort of reaching out uh, to Ender uh, and to Valentine before his death. It's almost, it seems, a kind of recognition of his own loneliness. I don't know. I mean, I might be going too far there, but that's kind of how it how it strikes me, thinking in these directions. Um yeah, I agree with April Harvard here. Um, I find it interesting, she says, that we only learn about Earth from an extreme distance. A distance not only of space, but of time, right? Um, we hear about... I mean, I know the Ansible goes instantaneously, but again, they are so removed from you know the, from the generations that have passed on Earth that there's a, there's a... I'm talking about the time gap between their experiences. We hear about peace and prosperity, but, remi- but it reminds me of the rumor of America from our history, where we are depicted as a land of endless opportunity and the streets were paved with gold. Um, yeah, I, there's peace there, presumably, but... Um, uh, uh, but um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's very it's very distant. It begins to seem very sort of theoretical again. Oh, so Peter's achieved his thing, but his, the thing that he achieves, even though it seems to be world peace on Earth for decades, right, which would arguably be a pretty big accomplishment, does I agree, April, begin to seem like a small thing, right, like a like a, 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 a remote and unimportant thing um, in the way that the story closes out. And I think that that's a fascinating. Um, a fascinating sort of phenomenon that we get there in the last chapter. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, April, uh, uh, sorry, April, we have two Aprils in class today. Both of you are contributing a lot, so I'm trying to not uh, keep, uh, not confuse you. April Cleaver, I'm going to get back to the comment that you just made. Uh, we're coming to that in a little bit. Um, Okay, I want to go back a little bit because it's sort of in thinking about this and about um, you know being tools and re- and being in community with each other and um, submitting to one another and to to serve and to be served by one another. Um, I want to go back to thinking about the relationship between um, Ender and the buggers. One thing that we skipped from chapter thirteen was the sequence of dreams that he has leading up to. Um, uh, to the final battle, and I want to make sure to go back and look at those in order to, um, uh, because they are, you know, directly anticipating the final sequence of the story, which obviously I want to talk about. So this is the night before his very first battle, his night before uh, the the first real battle, the first uh, actual confrontation with the buggers. 
Okay. He had been dreaming that buggers were vivisecting him, only instead of cutting open his body, they were cutting up his memories and displaying them like holographs and trying to make sense of them. It was a very odd dream, and Ender couldn't easily shake loose of it, even as he walked through the tunnels to the simulator room. The buggers tormented him in his sleep, and Mazer wouldn't leave him alone when he was awake. Between the two of them, he had no rest. Ender forced himself awake. So, notice this image. He, you know, of course, it is. It, we, we know in retrospect that these are not just dreams, right? That he is, in fact, um, in touch with the bugger hive mind through the Ansible. And some method, which I don't fully understand, um, I have to confess that I get pretty... St- when, when we get to the Ansible and the communication with the buggers and everything else, I, I, I get pretty firmly into suspending disbelief mode. I find further quest... You know, if I really try to um, kind of interrogate um, the, the, you know, sort of the physics of all this stuff... Um, I start to get really distracted, so I hope you will at least temporarily join me in ignoring all that, (laughs) and let's focus on what happens. So, uh, Ender is, uh, he has this dream, and in his dream, he is, uh, he he dreams of the relationship between himself and the buggers as a hostile one, right? Remember, we, we, we already heard descriptions that there were several of the bugger workers who were taken and vivisected, right? That actually happened, um, by human scientists, after the after the second invasion, when some of them were captured before they before they actually died, when they were still, uh, you know, sort of, um, um, you know, directionless and and uh, uh, and lifeless, um, though not dead, after the death of the the queen in the in the second invasion. So he's imagining the buggers vivisecting him. So I think that what he is describing happening, them taking his memories and displaying them and trying to make sense of them, seems to be an insight into what is actually happening, that the buggers are really, in fact, looking at his memories. It's a very odd dream, and Ender couldn't shake loose of it. Again, he is the one who seems to contextualize it within his dreams as a hostile act, as if he were the captive of the buggers. Um, and he were their victim, and their action were a hostile action. And again, what he is imagining is them doing to him what the humans did, in fact, do to the buggers, right? Um, him operating under this sort of subconscious assumption that the buggers' attitude towards humanity is essentially the mirror image of humanity's attitude towards the buggers, that they are going to see him as the enemy who must be destroyed at all costs, that they are going, that they would treat him um, with the kind of combination of sort of savagery and um, and um, uncaring that uh, that the humans um, handled the buggers when they uh, when they fell into their hands. Um, um, good. Now. Um, the second dream, we get to a familiar landscape. As he drifted off to sleep each night, it was with thoughts of the simulator playing through his mind. But in the night, he thought of other things. Often he remembered the corpse of the giant, decaying steadily. He did not remember it, though, in the pixels on the picture of, of his desk. Instead, it was real, the faint odor of death still lingering near it. Things were changed in his dreams. 
The little village that had grown up between the giant's ribs was composed of buggers now, and they saluted him gravely, like gladiators greeting Caesar before they died for his entertainment. He did not hate the, bu the buggers in his dream, and even though he knew that they had hidden their queen from him, he did not try to search for her. He always left the giant's body quickly, and when he got to the playground, the children were always there, woven and mocking. They wore faces that he knew. Sometimes Peter, and sometimes Bonzo, sometimes Stilson and Bernard. Just as often, though, the savage creatures were a lie, and Shen, and Dink, and Petra. Sometimes one of them would be Valentine, and in his dream he also shoved her under the water, and waited for her to drown. She writhed in his hands, fought to come up, but at last was still. He dragged her out of the lake and onto the raft, where she lay with her face in the rictus of death. He screamed and wept over her, crying again and again that it was a game, a game. He was only playing. This dream is um, so complicated, it's really hard to know where to start here. First we have the decaying corpse of the giant. Remember the giant and what the giant was, um, what it sort of meant before, when we met the giant and the giant's corpse. Remember the giant uh, and the giant's game, right? The giant's drink game. That was the first time that Ender was presented with an apparently insoluble problem which could be solved by, uh, by breaking the rules of the game, right? But the breaking of the rules was necessarily destructive. He could, you know, this is one of the first times we saw him saying that Peter would be proud of him, right? That he, uh, he, 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 he's a killer now even when he plays games, right? Um, and the corpse of the dra of the dragon, I almost said, the dragon is later, um, the corpse of the giant, which becomes a feature of the landscape, right? Which becomes something um, no, no longer human, not just a victim, but life grows up from within it, right? It's really interesting. Again, it's not just, this is not just the horrifying, stinking remains of this atrocious act that he had to commit in order to win that game, which didn't have a solution. Uh, again, a, a thing which is going to come back again and again, all the way back down to the destruction of the, the bugger's homeworld at the end. Um, but instead we have life growing up. Remember, even in the computer game itself, um, before he stopped playing it, we had people living within the giant's corpse, right? We had the, the little village of dwarves that had grown up and built houses in the ribcage. Um, but now, buggers are living there. So we see the buggers saluting him gravely like gladiators greeting Caesar before they died for his entertainment. Um... No longer is he the victim of the buggers. In his dreams, they're not vivisecting him anymore. He still imagines them in a kind, a di very different kind, but a kind of confrontational role, right? Not exactly friends, not exactly allies, but, you know, they're accepting. Um, that is what the gladiator salute essentially does. It's a statement of acceptance, right? We who are about to die salute you, is what the gladiators say uh, to Caesar in the arena. Um, the recognition that they're about to, you know, so that, that, that parallel acknowledges that they are about to die, right? They're sort of, he's getting that message from them. Um, in their dreams, they are recognizing their coming death. They're, all, they're resigned 
to their coming death, and yet we have this, almost this... They understand that he's just playing a game, right? Again, they're dying for his entertainment. And they're not accusing him of cruelty, right? Um, there's, again, the, there, there's a kind of acknowledgement of the entire complex situation. Like the buggers that he is seeing in the, cor- in the you know, ribcage of the giant actually know more than he does, right? Understand the situation better than he does, and he is not fully comprehending what they're comprehending here, right? Um, and then, of course, what else? Do we, and he doesn't hate them, right? He doesn't view them as his enemies. Um, and so he leaves them behind right away, and instead goes to the place where the non-children live. And we were looking at the content, you know, when that passage first comes up, when he first um, goes to the playground and meets the children who are not really children, but in fact wolves who will turn on him and, and, and tear him to pieces unless he proactively kills them all first, um, tricks them and traps them and drowns them, uh, then they will kill him. And we were looking, you know, when that was first being presented to us, it was in the context of the hostility he was receiving at battle school and ultimately the confrontation with Bonzo. Um, But the contrast, the way in which the sort of peaceful and resigned village of bugger warriors. I say warriors because of the gladiator connection that we're being given here, right? This this, this peaceful, resigned community of bugger warriors and this community of human children. And it's the human children that are the real monsters, right? Um, they're the ones who act like his enemy, and we see him, Ender, being tormented, right? Um being tormented by not only the fact that all of these other humans that he knows, some of whom were his enemies, like Peter and Stilson and Bonzo, and some of whom were his friends, like Eli, Shen, Dink, Petra, and even Valentine, all of them turn out to be inhuman. All of them turn out to be monstrous, and he is forced to kill all of them. Um, Coming finally to that enormously poignant uh, vision of himself killing Wolf Valentine, only then to drag her out of the lake where he, you know, he's drowned her in the lake, and to drag her out onto the raft where she lay with her face in the rictus of death. Um, again, these are dreams that um, the buggers are, in a sense, inciting. Right? We, you know, we learn that they have been sifting through his memories, that they have been getting to know him, that they have been contacting him and communicating with him and receiving communication from him, even though he doesn't realize it, even though he doesn't recognize it. Um, so there, um, these dreams that he has are to some extent not in his control and to some extent are just a recapitulation and kind of juxtaposition of his own memories, right? But they're also clearly playing on his own fears and insecurities as well. The way in which his enemies and friends are mingled together among the children wolves, right? The way in which these creatures are simultaneously his friends and peers, but also monsters who must be destroyed uh, lest they destroy him. Um, the 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 sort of the complexity of his relationship with his own kind there um is um 
I think, you know, again, in, in, especially in the context of the fact that this is a bugger dream, seems to me to point to what I would imagine to be um, a lot of confusion on the part of the buggers. Why do human beings treat each other like this? What exactly is going on here? It's not... What is monstrous? Whether it's the children wolves themselves or Ender himself who are monstrous, there's a lot of monstrosity going on in that playground, right, among these non-children. Ender included. Uh, The bugger village is peaceful and resigned uh, by contrast. Um, And it really, I think, you know, and, and, and the way in which Ender's own uncertainties, you know, the th- you know the the ways in which he has been kind of rationalizing things are kind of taken away from him, um, are really sort of exposed. Um, it was so much cleaner, wasn't it, the first time with the wolf children, right? I mean, on the one hand, it was a little bit creepy, um, but it was it was like the confrontation with Bonzo, right? Okay, so you've got some of the children are acting like wolves, right? Some of them are acting like monsters, and that's awful. Um, and, uh, you know, Bonzo and these other guys who are trying to kill Ender, that's terrible. And Ender, you know, he has to protect himself, right? I mean, what else can he do? Um, the alternative is death. That's true in the game, right? It was actually true in, you know, in that bathroom when he was fighting with Bonzo. You know, he's got to kill or be killed. What else can he do, Right. It was, you know, even then it seemed kind of, it was already a little bit, uh, a little bit difficult, but it was much cleaner then compared to now when we see it again, as if, I think, through the bugger's eyes, right? Um, uh, you know, to me, the juxtaposition of Peter and Stilson and Bernard and Bonzo with Eli, Shen, Dink, and Petra and Valentine um, is to me almost as if, um, I'm tempted to read that. Almost as if the buggers asking, or so you know. So, what is the difference exactly? Um, what is the distinction? But you know, you guys are all humans, right? You all are. It's, you're like each one of you is a queen intellectually, right? Why are you doing this? You know, why are you like this? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Alyssa makes a really good point here too. She says an interesting point is his not his his not trying to search for the queen. Um, why not? Does his dream self, after all, have honor, reserving something uh, and recognizing a boundary? Remember, there was that um, that implication that the queens were that you know the buggers were so horrified they couldn't imagine that anyone would actually kill a queen, um, and. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, you know, Alyssa, do we see? And again, this is sort of, in that sense, filtered through the bugger consciousness, right? That he's not—he's not even going to try. He's not even going to go there, um, because again, that's not the emphasis of this dream. This dream is not about him and the buggers. It's about him and other people, right? Um, and again, all of this happening in or near the corpse of the giant that he killed in the very first, in his very first attempt to do the undoable, to perform the impossible, to uh, break the rules and thus win an unwinnable game. Um, And so in this way, the corpse of the giant is parallel with the destroyed bugger homeworld, right? You know, in in the end, um, you know, you have all of these anticipations, right? You know, you've got the giant. You've got the room at the end of the world. You've got um, the final his final 
um, battle in battle school, right, against the two armies, um, and then finally the destruction, you know, the the confrontation with the bugger homeworld, you know. So you've got these these different situations in which he's confronted with seemingly insoluble problems, and he's got to find a way to break the rules in order to get through them. Um, we saw, or you, know, you could arguably. Um, and I think the parallel is, is, is clearly there. Lump in his confrontation with Stilson and his confrontation with Bonzo into that same pattern. Um, where, again, he's got to break the rules, he's got to break the taboos in order to win the game, win the confrontation in the only way uh, that he can, that he believes he can win it. Um, and again, so that to me is what the giant's corpse with the location of this dream conjures up. You know, it's sort of in that context. Um, which is still being anticipated. The bugger world hasn't been destroyed yet, right? It's kind of a, it's kind of a loom, you know. So the 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 decaying giant, um, which he can still smell the odor of death surrounding, um, is is sort of an anticipation of, or or sort of a warning of the position he's gonna be in later on. Well, then right afterwards. So this is during his period of of. Uh, unconsciousness after the destruction of the bug of the bugger homeworld, he has another set another dream, and um, this is fascinating because it's like the other bugger dreams. But this is obviously, I think it's obvious, right? Not generated by the buggers, right? This is generated purely by his own uh, subconscious because the buggers who have been in fact communicating with his mind are dead now, um, but. Um, Here's his last dream. It might have been a single day. It might have been a week. From his dreams, it could have been months. He seemed to pass through lifetimes in his dreams, through the giant's drink again, past the wolf children, reliving the terrible deaths, the constant murders. He heard a voice whispering in the forest, You had to kill the children to get to the end of the world. And he tried to answer, I never wanted to kill anybody. Nobody ever asked me if I wanted to kill anybody. But the forest laughed at him. And when he leapt from the cliff at the end of the world, sometimes it was not clouds that caught him, but a fighter that carried him to a vantage point near the surface of the bugger's world, so he could watch over and over the eruption of death when Dr. Device set off a reaction on the planet's face, then closer and closer, until he could watch individual buggers explode, turn to light, then collapse into a pile of dirt before his eyes. And the queen, surrounded by infants, only the queen was mother, and the infants were Valentine, and all the children he had known in battle school. One of them had Bonzo's face, and he lay there bleeding through the nose, through the eyes and nose, saying, You have no honor. And always the dream ended with a mirror or a pool of water or the metal surface of a ship, something that would reflect his face back to him. At first, it was always Peter's face, with blood and a snake's tail coming from the mouth. After a while, though, it began to be his own face, old and sad, with eyes that grieved for a billion, billion murders. But they were his own eyes, and he was content to wear them. I like the dream sequences almost as much as I like the fantasy game earlier on in the book. Um, I never want... Nobody asked me if I wanted to kill anybody. Um, he's saying this, of course, in the context of not wanting... He never wanted to kill the children to get to the end of the world, right? Um, the way in which... You know, I mentioned several classes ago that one of the things that I find um, really 
wonderful to think in uh, really exhilarating and thinking about this book is the way that particular words and phrases keep coming back and you return to them again and look at them in a completely new way they 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 resonate with an entirely new force uh, as you move on through the book um things like buggers and astronauts for one thing for instance um but another one for me is the end of the world remember the end of the world and that the debate about what what does it mean, the end of the world? Um, the end of what world? The end in what sense of the world? And we were looking at various, um, you know, significance that that phrase seemed to have for Ender at that point in the story. Of course, the entire concept of the end of the world comes to have uh, an enormous and an enormously increased significance once Ender has actually... Um, destroyed a world, right? Once he has actually caused the end of the bugger's world. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, that sentence, you had to kill the children to get to the end of the world. What a horribly resonant sentence that is, isn't it? Um, you know, in several ways that's true, right? It was true in the fantasy game, of course, on its most literal level. Um, it was true for Ender, right? He had to kill the children. He's just going to go on to fantasize about the, the baby buggers, right? Um, having killed the entire bugger population, not just destroyed the fighters, not just defeated their army with his army, um, but to destroy every last member of the bugger race, the queen and her infants. Um in order to get to the end of the world, you've got to kill the children, right? But of course, there's another sense in which that statement is true. Um, you could say it to Graf also. Hey, Graf, you had to kill the children to get to the end of the world, right? Um, the trial of Graf at the beginning of chapter 14, I haven't talked about it much. I'm not planning to talk about it too much. I will come back to it a little bit, but, um, um, but again, the... Uh, you could say to Graf, you had to kill the children to get to the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, you destroyed... You ended up bringing about the destruction of the bugger homeworld. The bugger menace has been destroyed forever. Congratulations. Um, but you had to kill the children to get there, right? Thinking of Ender. And not just Stilson and Bonzo, right? That's what the trial is about, these deaths that have been caused. But it's not just Stilson and Bonzo, it's Ender himself, and so many of the other kids um, at battle school. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Sorry, looking at a few of your comments here. Um, good. Um, April Harward, I agree with you. Um, April argues that in the end, um, he recognizes that he's not Peter, right? He sees the face in the mirror, and at first it's always Peter's face. We've seen his fear again and again. I am really Peter, right? Either I'm becoming Peter, or truly deep down I am Peter. I am just as cruel. I am just as heartless. I am just as much of a monster 
as Peter with the tail, the bloody tail of a snake sticking out his mouth. That, that identification with Peter that the image in the mirror seems to imply. Um, and the reassurance that Valentine wants to give him, you're not Peter. And you'll notice also, I think I mentioned this, but it, were, it bears mentioning again, the way in which Valentine, you know, the, one of the things that really jumps out at me in their conversation on the raft is the way in which Valentine's reassurances of Ender begin to sound incredibly empty, I think, not just to Ender, but to the reader as well. When she keeps insisting, you're not like that, you're not like that. We know he is like that, right? Um, you know, when he says, like, I am really good at proactive uh, battles and I can hurt people when I need to hurt people, and she's like, no, you wouldn't. And we're like, actually, yeah, Valentine, he would. Um, her protestations, you're nothing like Peter, you're nothing like Peter, um, are a little hollow. No, he's not the same as Peter, but it's not as simple as all that. You know, she wants to say, he's the opposite of Peter, right? He's good, he's completely good. No, he's not completely good. But also, he's not like Peter, and as April Harvard is pointing out, um, it's like Ender, uh, you know, in this dream, it is as if there is a sense in which he's almost coming to peace with this. He's not Peter. Um, it's his own face. His own, his own face, old and sad, with eyes that grieved for a billion, billion murders. Um, is he a killer like Peter? Yes. He's a killer, like Peter, much more than Peter. He has killed a billion, billion people, he says. Um, but unlike Peter, he grieves for those that have died. Um, they were his own eyes, and he was content to wear them. Content to wear them in what sense? Content because he is reconciled to the grief of his guilt, because he feels his guilt and feels that he should feel grief, Um that although the eyes in the face that he sees are old and sad and seem to be haunted, he believes that they deserve to be, and so um, is satisfied that his face should look like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, Sharon asks a question. Sharon, that was exactly... Remember when I said it's obvious that this dream isn't coming from the buggers, and then I kind of paused and said, I think it's obvious? Sharon, the thought that crossed my mind as I was in the middle of uttering that sentence was exactly the question you've just asked, which is, could Ender be communicating with the remaining larval queen's mind uh, in this dream of the end of the world? Um, is the larval queen, queen learning about his grief at the genocide? Um, I don't know. I don't know. That's It's exactly that thought that gave me pause. It's possible, maybe. I am kind of inclined to think no. Um, to in Inclined to think that this dream is just his own. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I, I, as soon as I said it was obvious, I, I was like, wait a second, hang on, there is another possibility. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, certainly, the Larval Queen does seem to understand... Um, that uh, he does grieve for the billion, billion murders. Um, so, you know, maybe, Sharon, you could argue, as you're suggesting, that this dream is the mechanism by which she is... by, by maintaining a connection with him um, after the uh, destruction of the Bugger homeworld. She is understanding his reaction to it, understanding that he didn't know what he was doing 
and that once he did understand, he was sorry. Um, seems possible. April Harward agrees, thinks it's possible. Uh, April says it could be. It's what she was born for, to communicate with humans. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, Kate uh, Neville asks, is there a way in which the human children are to the adults as the buggers to the, are to the queen, especially in a society that limits childbirth? They seem to be considered extensions of society, valuable only for the way in which they can serve humanity as a whole. I think there's a parallel there. I think especially with the um, the childbirth limitations, um, that does make a kind of sense. But but that's monstrous. Not in the buggers. In humans, it's monstrous, right? Um, to treat another sentient being that way, to treat another rational being that way, the way that the buggers treat their children, is wrong. The buggers would agree that it was wrong. One queen doesn't treat another queen that way, right? Um, so it seems to be one way perhaps in which in viewing the buggers as monstrous and horrible the humans are projecting onto them their own sort of monstrosity um yeah yeah um yeah well, let me, um, I should move forward. I'm going to need, I can't, uh, as always in afternoon classes, I can't keep going as long as I do in night classes because in the night classes, my family is asleep already. Uh, and, uh, in the afternoon classes, my family is clamoring for food. So I have to move forward here, uh, to provide for my own young, but, um, it's worth remembering, of course, that, uh, Ender's own response. This is his response to the, you know, uh, killing the children in order to get to the end of the world. Um, after the trial of Graf, uh, Ender didn't care about his reputation. He watched the videos impassively, but in fact he was amused. In battle I killed ten billion buggers, whose queens, at least, were as alive and wise as any man, who had not even launched a third attack against us, and no one thinks to call it a crime. All his crimes weighed heavily on him. The deaths of Stilson and Bonzo, no heavier and no lighter than the rest. Um, remember the passage we were looking at last time, um, at the very end of class, about the, uh, sort of the consequences, the unforeseen consequences. Um, Graf describes how basically he was trying to build an empathic gun, right? A weapon that would be the perfect weapon of destruction, the perfect aggressive weapon of, de of preemptive destruction, but which still had the capacity to empathize with the enemy in order to understand them sufficiently well to defeat them. But the consequence is to create someone who is absolutely stuck in self-loathing. You will recall Ender's um, comment. This is the last passage I was referring to just now, um, when he's talking to Valentine and saying about how he, uh, he loves his enemy right before he destroys him and doesn't just defeat him, but before he completely obliter obliterates them. And the, that, the way in which he has a hard time living with himself for this reason, that he is always destroying what he loves and loving what he destroys. And that, of course, is going to be um, much more true, much more fully true. When Ender talks about loving his enemy to Valentine in that conversation, I have to conclude that he's speaking sort of metaphorically, um, sort of trying to characterize that sense of 
of of oneness you know by empathizing with them almost perfectly it's like he can do the mind-to-mind communication with them that the buggers can do with each other um so that's um I, I, you know, I, I, so I don't think he's he's referring to loving them in like the sense of like feeling all like you know warm and fuzzy with them. Certainly, when he defeated Bonzo, either in the bathroom in their physical fight or in the battle room when he completely demolished um, uh, Bonzo's, you know, when he demolished Salamander Army, um, he, you know, he didn't love Bonzo in a in a in a you know in a in a warm and friendly way um but empathized with him right um could feel with him could understand the suffering that he was going through um anyhow um that we can see both times when he defeats Bonzo actually uh um Okay. Um, Sean Hyde asks, can we make anything of the fact that the number of buggers that died keeps changing by orders of magnitude? You're right, uh, Sean. We've got, you know, 10 billion and billion, a billion billion. And yeah, I, um, yeah, I think we can make something of that, Sean, which is simply that the number is really huge, right? That is, none of those numbers seem to be any attempt at precision. Um, but all of them are expressions. That they're, they're all given in the context of Ender's mind trying to grapple with the enormity of what he did, right? Of what happened. Of what was caused through him, though unknowing by him. Um, uh, that the enormity of it um, to murder an entire species um, is so hard to grapple with that in thinking about the number of creatures that he did away with, um, he uh, uh, he just keeps sort of piling these enormous numbers on. Um, that, anyway, um, Sean, is how I understand it. Um, but let's look at that final sequence. I want to do want to make sure that we get through this, um, even if I have to save some of the, uh, the the questions that you guys sent for the beginning of next class when we talk about the film. Um, but I want to get through this closing sequence no matter what happens. This is, of course, Ender and the Larval Queen at the end of the world. The room was as it always had been. Ender remembered well enough to look for a snake on the floor, but there was only a rug with a carved snake's head at one corner. Imitation, not duplication. For a people who made no art, they had done well. They must have dragged these images from Ender's own mind, finding him and learning his darkest dreams across the light years. But why? To bring him to this room, of course, to leave a message for him. But where was the message, and how would he understand it? The mirror was waiting for him on the wall. It was a dull sheet of metal, in which a rough shape of a human face had been scratched. They tried to draw the image I should see in the picture. And looking at the mirror, he could remember breaking it, pulling it from the wall, and snakes leaping out behind, leaping out of the hidden place, attacking him, biting him wherever their poisonous fangs could find purchase. How well do they know me, wondered Ender. Well enough to know how often I have thought of death, to know that I am not afraid of it. Well enough to know that even if I feared death, it would not stop me from taking that mirror from the wall. Ender has come to the end of the world again. Right, 
and this time it is the end of the world as recreated by the buggers. Um, and this is sort of the final moment um, that we need to put next to those other end of the world moments. When we were looking, when we were comparing the end of the world the first time he goes, right, when he stomps on the heel of the uh, of the snake and then the other snakes come out from behind the mirror, the one that he's remembering here, and bite him to death. And then the second time when he goes and he uh, is not sure whether he intends to eat the snake or, or what he's going to do, but he ends up kissing the snake and it becomes Valentine and the mirror opens and they walk through among the uh, you know the the cheering crowds who all bear Peter's face, but this scene, this is the third one that needs to be held in parallel with those as well, the real world end of the world where he is confronting the end of the bugger world, um, and where they have made these parallels, and it, it, again, it invites us to recall those other things, those other moments, those earlier times. Um, what did he do? How did he escape the end of the world? This is the one time, the end of the world. Remember, it was noteworthy at the time. Every other time, he breaks the rules. It is by doing something violent, right? Um, every other time, he he emerges from a seemingly impossible situation. He breaks the rules in order to do it. It's associated with violence, murder, or both, right? Stilson, Giant's Drink, Bonzo, even the last battle in Battle Room, the way he breaks the rules and has them just go through the door without winning the game. Um, Of course, the destruction of the bugger homeworld in the end, the one difference, the one place in which he breaks the rules and solves the puzzle is when he kisses the snake instead of killing it, right? It's the one thing that kind of jumps out that doesn't fit that pattern, that pro-preemptive violence pattern that we get everywhere else um, everywhere else in the story. And of course, it's that moment that the buggers are, are capturing here, that the buggers are alluding to. Remember when you kissed the snake? You escaped. You got past the end of the world by kissing the snake, by kissing your enemy. And what happened when he kissed the snake? What did it become? His sister, right? It became Valentine. It turned out that the snake was his sister. And you'll remember that his mind shuddered back from that. Was the snake Valentine all along? Have I been killing for months and months? Have I been squishing the head of Valentine? And he couldn't even think about it, right? Is it Valentine that's being eaten by Peter? The buggers turn out to be his sisters, right? The queen who is there, the larval queen, turns out to be his sister, which he so he isn't being invited again to kiss the snake and discover when he does so that she becomes his sister, even though he is horrified to think of the number of times he has killed his sister. And though we have that image of humanity there with the bloody corpse of his sister hanging out of its mouth, Nevertheless, Ender uh, is able to embrace the snake and to uh, to move past that. That seems to be the moment that the buggers are reconstructing in their rebuilding of the end of the world here. He's ready for death. He's willing to accept death. He believes that he deserves death because of what he has done, because of the murders he has committed. Um, instead of receiving death, he also is going to receive generosity. We have in this moment the two of them, 
the Bugger Queen and Ender kissing each other, essentially, um, in a scene which I find really very moving. Um, we are invited to recall, at least I uh, remember, Ender putting on the bugger mask. Remember, he always had to be the bugger when he played buggers and astronauts with Peter. Um, and he would put on the bugger mask and he was looking at the world through the eyes of a bugger. Uh, and you'll remember in that moment that he tried to identify with them, right? He tried to understand um, what the world might look like, what humans in particular might appear like to a bugger. That, of course, finally comes true in this perfected way at the end of the story when he sees himself, when he sees the human fleet through the eyes of the buggers. How do I know this, thought Ender? How can I see these things like memories in my own mind? As if in answer he saw the first of all his battles with the bugger fleets. He had seen it before on the simulator. Now he saw it as the Hive Queen saw it through many different eyes. The buggers formed their globe of ships, and then the terrible fighters came out of the darkness, and the little doctor destroyed them in a blaze of light. He felt, then, what the Hive Queen felt, watching through her workers' eyes as death came to them too quickly to avoid, but not too quickly to be anticipated. There was no memory of pain or fear, though. What the Hive Queen felt was sadness, a sense of resignation. She had not thought these words, as she saw the humans coming to kill, but, in, but it was in words that Ender understood her. The humans did not forgive us, she thought. We will surely die. It's not just that he's seeing the other side of things, right? Again, this could be done really tritely. It could be done really simply, right? Oh, when you look at it through the eyes of the buggers, it's the humans who are awful and the buggers who are good and, and the terrible humans coming in and destroying things, and that's awful. But we see, no, because the buggers also are like Ender in their own sense of self-loathing. The buggers feel guilty for what they did during their first two invasions. They didn't know. They didn't realize that they were committing murders, right? They, 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 they didn't realize that each of the humans that they were destroying was an independent, rational being. That's not how they are wired. They didn't know. They accept the death that is coming for them. They recognize it. They salute him as the gladiator saluted Caesar. Um, they still fight, Right? They try to protect, you know, the queen is still going to try to protect her children. The queen is still going to try to fight off the fleet. But on one level, we see that she accepts punishment, right? Um, they did not forgive us. We will surely die. Um, Ender asks the queen, If you could make them feel as you could make me feel, then perhaps they could forgive you, he says. Only me he realized. They found me through the ansible, followed it, and dwelt in my mind. In the agony of my tortured dreams they came to know me, even as I spent my days destroying them. They found my fear of them. They found also that I had no knowledge I was killing them. In the few weeks they had, they built this place for me, and the giant's corpse and the playground and the ledge at the end of the world, so I would find this place by the evidence of my eyes. I am the only one they know, and so they can only talk to me and through me. We are like you, the thought pressed into his mind. We did not mean to murder. When we understood, we never came again. We thought we were the only thinking beings in the universe, until we met you. 
but never did we dream that thought could arise from the lonely animals who cannot dream each other's dreams. How were we to know? We could live with you in peace. Believe us. Believe us. Believe us. We are like you. There are so many ways in which that sentence also, don't you sort of hear that sentence resonating throughout the book? And in some ways, um, this paragraph turns that back on itself. At the beginning, remember back in class one, we were talking about how the the story seems to establish very early on that dichotomy between humanities and the buggers, right? Between the humans and the monsters. And you've got those awful, horrible, terrible buggers. Um, and uh, the fact, you know, uh, Kristen, I'm thinking of the point that you've made, you made by email to me uh, uh, several weeks ago about the, the coarseness of the name that the buggers are given, you know the way that the way that 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 bugger uh, is a is a is a crude sexual term as well. Um, that you know it's, it it just gives this um, this air of uh, you know this sort of atmosphere of of uh, of really deep unpleasantness um, to the buggers and their characterization by people at the beginning. So again, we're invited to see to divide the world into buggers and astronauts, right? The monsters and the humans. Um, and then we see that sort of being complicated. We are like you, right? We're not just monsters. Um, but, but we see it's more than just that, right? Because we see, we've been seeing ever since then, ever since the first class, that the humans are, that the you know, they are like us, right? Or we are like them, right? We view them as this, you know, these inhuman monsters. It turns out that the humans are the ones that are inhuman, right? Um, And we've seen, you know, the way in which, uh, you know, these these kinds of monstrosities seem to be everywhere, right? Um, That the, the line between monster and human doesn't seem to really be that sharp. Well, now that line gets blurred, but in a different way. It's not just um, neither... Neither way of breaching that divide, the divide between us and them that we get at the beginning. It could be done in one of two really trite ways, right? It could be done in the, hey, we're not monsters. We're just benevolent creatures like you. You've just misunderstood us. And that's true. But there's more than that. You could also blur that line by saying, uh, look in the mirror, my friends, and what you might see is Peter Wigan with a snake coming out of his mouth, right? We're monsters, okay, and, you know, you had those images of us, you know, killing, uh, you know, all the marines on that ship that we sent to Eros and everything else, you know, so, okay, so we're monsters, and you've got the videos of us making marines' heads explode and everything else, okay, fine, we're monsters, but so are you, right, you're Peter Wiggin with a snake in his mouth, um, okay, yeah, that works too, but it's more than just that too, in the end, what we see is we are like you, in the sense of we make mistakes, right? We do stuff that we're really sorry for afterwards. Um, Ender didn't know what he was doing. He didn't realize he was committing genocide. Um, They didn't know. They didn't know. Humanity doesn't know that the third 
attack is unnecessary. I've been, um, you know, I've been trying to say because I think it's a really important point in this story that it's one. Th- you know, it would be easy simply to demonize the IF and say, "Oh, look at that! How terrible they are!" You know, in, t- in making this preemptive strike. I've been, I've been trying to defend the preemptive strike from the beginning. I don't think that this story permits us just to sort of disregard it and say. The moral of this story is that this kind of violence is horrible, and if you if you act violently and if you if you give into this preemptive violence mentality, then you know it's uh, uh, really horrible, horrible things happen. I don't think it's that simple. Um, as we talked about before, humanity has every reason to believe you know that th- their choice to make the preemptive third invasion. Um, against the bugger homeworld is a perfectly rational one. They have every reason to believe the buggers are going to come back. They did before, right? Um, they had an opportunity to not come back, and they didn't not come back. And so humanity concludes, we're not going to let them come back a third time. We're going to go after them. Just as Ender's choice when going after and ultimately killing his, the, the, the bullies who are trying to beat on him um, perhaps in the first case, much more certainly in the second case, was really necessary. If he hadn't killed Bonzo, Bonzo would have killed him. That does seem to be true. Um, and he was going to be left, the circumstance was 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 orchestrated by Graf, and, uh, well, Graf, um, that it was in fact necessary. There was no other outcome. Um, he could not have, as his mom suggested, go find a teacher, go find a grown-up to help him. They were not going to help him. Um, but, um, anyway, um, this is, uh, At the end of the day, they made a mistake. It wasn't necessary, right? Um, how were they to know? How were they to know? They couldn't communicate with the buggers, right? As Ender said, the real source of the bugger war is that we can't talk to each other, right? That was Graf's theory, too. Um, but remember Graf's outlook on that. If you can't talk to somebody, you can't know he's not trying to kill you, right? Um yeah, they screwed up. It was a wrong call. The third invasion turns out not to have been... So we've got the horrible irony of the fact that it was all totally unnecessary. Right? You've got the, the noble sacrifice of the pilots, of those fighters and everything else, and it, in the end, it, it wasn't needed. It wasn't needed. They weren't coming back. They were peaceful. They could live in peace with the humans. But the buggers made a bad call, too. The second invasion was a wrong call. Um... Their first invasion was to find out and see if the planets were livable, and they were. Um, and they didn't suspect that humans were intelligent creatures. How were they to know? Uh, how we never did we dream that thought could arise from the lonely animals who cannot dream each other's dreams. How could we? How were we to know? Um, they couldn't communicate. They were unable to put on the human mask in the way that Ender has ultimately been enabled to put on the bugger mask through the bugger's own communication. That connection established between the Ansible and the hive mind of the buggers is the one thing that has made all of that possible. And beforehand, neither one of them was really able to understand the other. Um, 
Ender's Book It was written as if the Hive Queen spoke, telling all that they had meant to do and all that they had done. Here are our failures, and here is our greatness. We did not mean to hurt you, and we forgive you for our death. From their earliest awareness to the great wars that swept across their homeworld, Ender told the story quickly, as if it were an ancient memory. When he came to the tale of the Great Mother, the Queen of All, who first learned to keep and teach the new queen, instead of killing her or driving her away. Then he lingered, telling how many times she had finally to destroy the child of her body, the new self that was not herself, until she bore one who understood her quest for harmony. This was a new thing in the world— Two queens that loved and helped each other instead of battling, and together they were stronger than any other hive. They prospered. They had more daughters who joined them in peace. It was the beginning of wisdom. Remember what Valentine said about tigers, right? Um, if humans were not killing machines, right? Um, humans didn't evolve to sit on rafts in the middle of lakes, right? They evolved to be killers, it's by being the most effective killers that they rule the planet instead of tigers. Okay. So evolution. Moving forward. In order to move forward, the only way you can move forward is to be the most efficient killer. The buggers say that's not true. Right? They already were efficient killers. What moved them forward was finding peace. Not being like tigers, not out-tigering the tigers, um, but in fact, differing from them almost completely. Notice embedded in that, of course, is the summary execution of all of the other queens, right? Um, telling how many times she had finally to destroy the child of her body, the new self that was not herself until she bore one who understood her quest for harmony. Um, We don't have time to get into it too much, but here's a thought exercise. Uh, here's a little paper assignment. Compare and contrast that action, the Hive Queen and the new non-peaceful queens, um, until she finally manages to, uh, to bring up a queen who is like unto her. Compare and contrast that and Battle School. There's a little paper assignment for you. Um, so again, I think that we can see one of the consequences of Ender's book, one of the consequences of one of the things that he learns from the buggers is that, you know, perhaps actually the way that people have been looking at, the way that, the way that they have convinced themselves, that people have convinced themselves that they need to look at the world, that they need to look at themselves, is in fact fundamentally wrong. Um, the change that needs to happen is not just the willingness to live in peace with the buggers, but in a sense the, the willingness to live in peace, period, with themselves. That you don't, in fact, have to be Peter Wigan um, in order to do this. Yeah, Kate is saying it's, it's, it sounds like the breeding of Ender. Absolutely, I agree. Between the between the 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 breeding plan of trying to bring Ender Wigan into being, uh, and then the weeding out at Battle School, yeah, it sounds a lot to me like that. Um, but um, their final move is blessing. And acceptance. If only we could have talked to you, the Hive Queen said in Ender's words, but since it could not be, we ask only this, that you remember us, not as enemies, but as tragic sisters, changed into a foul shape by fate or God or evolution. If we had kissed, it would have been the miracle to make us human in each other's eyes. 
Instead, we killed each other. But still we welcome you now as guest friends. Come into our home, daughters of earth. Dwell in our tunnels. Harvest our fields. What we cannot do, you are now our hands to do for us. Blossom, trees. Ripen, fields. Be warm for them, suns. Be fertile for them, planets. They are our adopted daughters, and they have come home. The final action of the buggers is one of forgiveness. Right? that they forgive the humans for doing what they did. Notice, that's the final step that Ender hasn't fully taken. Not to forgive the buggers, exactly, but ultimately to forgive himself. They have achieved, the buggers have achieved a kind of peace, right? This kind of peace in forgiving the humans and in welcoming them, ultimately. Remember I was suggesting that we are like you, the parallel not just between the buggers and humanity, but between the buggers and Ender personally, right? He's the only one they can talk to. He is the one who is like them um, and who reflects their mindset. His own sense of self-loathing is, uh, again, we can see that mirrored. They didn't understand. They killed without realizing that they were killing, but afterwards came to understand and repented of it and were horrified by their own actions and felt themselves to be worthy of death. Um, Ender hasn't received death as a consequence of his crimes, um, but instead is, uh, you know, he is, they, they reach out to him, right? Their final action is one of forgiveness, to forgive the humans. His final action is to submit himself to become their tool. Ender finally does become a tool. In fact, his entire identity is submerged within the Speaker for the Dead, right? He becomes the Speaker for the Dead. He becomes their instrument. He becomes their hands. He becomes their voice, right? He joins himself to the buggers in order to, um, to be in community. He, he does reach out and kiss the snake there in the end and join with them uh, walking through the gate even though he's confronted by a world which all bear Peter's face, right? He still tries to reach out to them um, in the voice of the Hive Queen. Um, and to be so, um, the way in which, and again, the, um, the emphasis I would place is on the choice that he makes. Um, the choice that he makes to submit himself, to submerge himself, um, to, to be their tool. Um, Anyway, um, there's a lot more that could be said about this. I, I'll sort of leave you to sort of think more about these things. I will come back to the questions um, that I got next time. Um, and if you have other comments or questions that you want to make, I encourage you to do that. I'll do those a little bit at the beginning of next time, but I'm still going to try to leave enough time uh, to make some comments about the film um, uh, in our last class. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, so any, as I said, any final comments you can feel free to send to me. Also, one other thing uh, that I wanted to let you know, um, at the beginning of class next time, I hope to have a special guest, um, uh, yeah, Mythgard faculty member, uh, 
Professor Amy Sturgis, who uh, teaches a class on science fiction um, in Mythgard. She teaches Ender's Game in her science fiction course, um, which she's going to be doing um, this coming fall and spring. Um, she's the real expert on this stuff. Um, so I wanted to give you a chance to ask her a couple questions and just to, to hear a little bit from her uh, about Ender's Game um, and about her upcoming class. So we're going we're gonna to have... Um, um, we're going to have her with us for a little bit at the beginning of class, so maybe she can help to um, to uh, address some of the questions that you guys have asked uh, as well. So I look forward to that, and I look forward to talking with you guys about Ender's Game one more time before we start getting ready for um, uh, for the Book of Lost Tales beginning on uh, on as I say the twentieth. So two weeks from this coming Tuesday when we finish the Ender's Game class. Um, so review the film. If you haven't seen it yet, go out and watch the film, and uh, we'll talk about that on uh, this coming Tuesday in just a few days. Uh, so thanks again, and I will talk to you guys soon. Bye now.